we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classco Immigration Law Partners. Hello, and uh, welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast from Classco Immigration Law Partners. My name is Steve Miller, and uh, I'm the editor on the firm's EB1 team. I'm here with Fega Grunman, a senior associate at Classco. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about uh, physicians who are seeking EB1 classification and uh, the challenges and opportunities that present itself in that sort of an immigration situation. And uh, one of the things that we hope that you'll take away from the episode is the idea that there's some room for creativity in these classifications and, you know, probably starting any case preparation or thinking about, you know, even deciding whether to have a case by brainstorming, jotting some things down, and then taking a look at it at the end and seeing where you can fit them under the different regulatory criteria. So of course the EB1 classification has two different subcategories, one for individuals with extraordinary ability, one for outstanding researchers. They have a lot of similarities but some really important differences. Um, The primary important difference of course is the requirement of a job offer for an outstanding researcher. That's one piece. The extraordinary ability can be self-petitioned and the outstanding researcher also will require that it is a tenure, tenure track, or position, or a position in an institution that has at least three full-time researchers. And of course, the key there is focusing on research. Um, So that may or may not work for a clinician depending on, or a physician clinician, depending on what their background is and what their work has been in. Um, So that's one of the the primary differences. The other primary difference for extraordinary ability, of course, is that it's a higher standard. So it is for the people who have risen to the very top percent of people in the field. So a very small group of people, very much already recognized as being at the top. So, um, Steve, when you're looking at a resume, you know, and you're you have someone who's a physician, what kinds of things are you looking at? to decide whether you're going to, first of all, do an EB-1 at all, and then whether you're going to try for extraordinary ability versus outstanding researcher. Sure. So um, first of all, it matters if your employer is willing to sponsor you or not. Uh, If your employer is going to sponsor you, then you have options. You can do outstanding researcher or you can do extraordinary ability. And sponsor doesn't necessarily mean paying. Sure. Yeah. just means they're going to put their name on the forms as a petitioner. So let's say uh, that you uh, are working for an employer who is willing to sponsor you. If you are a typical clinician, you know, a, a lot of your, if you've published it all, a lot of your publications are going to be case study type work, which is totally fine. But we just have to look at whether or not we're going to have enough uh, documentary evidence to go along with your case. Because a lot of times, you know, a working physician won't exactly have the paper that an academic physician will have. So we look for things like case studies. We look for uh, whether or not you've done grand rounds, uh, different uh, presentations perhaps at uh, other institutions, anything that we can document not only through, well, anything we can describe through testimonial evidence and document through hard primary uh, source material. 
Um, that's what we look for in a good uh, EB1 outstanding researcher case for a clinician. Uh, extraordinary ability, it would be quite similar. Um, it, you still want to have publications. You still want to have case studies, lectures, things like that. But again, uh, you will only have to go for extraordinary ability if your employer is not willing to sponsor you in your petition. And then, of course, if you don't have that option, then you're kind of left with the extraordinary ability. Um, so sometimes in certain situations, people may want to be more aggressive and file just to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it, of course, is very subjective. First, you know, you're going to have to creatively present any case um, in a compelling way. I think it's helpful if there's something in there that an adjudicator can relate to. And of course, an adjudicator has no background. They may not have gone to college, but maybe they went to a doctor or maybe they have someone in their family or have dealt with one of the things that this person, this physician has been working on. Um, so I think that a especially for physicians, and especially if you're going to have to fall under the catch-all, which um, is the, if you don't have evidence of the above regular criteria, things like publications, presentations, citations, judge of the work of others, material about you, then you can present comparable evidence. Um, So if you're going to go to the comparable evidence, you need to have something that the adjudicator especially can relate to, because otherwise, by the time it gets to the end, where they're doing a final merits analysis, you know, they're going to say, well, I don't know, this just seems like any old doctor, or does it seem like someone who, wow, I wish that I had this when I was going through this illness, or someone in my family, or maybe this is someone who's developing techniques that seem um, like they could really impact in a great way, or have already made, and really we're looking at have already Mm -hmm. made an impact, of course, but you know, maybe it would have made a different impact in someone's life had it been there at the time. Sure. And um, an important thing to consider and to kind of always keep in mind if you are a working physician who plans to pursue EB1 at some point is that you're going to always want to be gathering documentation. So as you're going through your daily life, you know, keep track of uh, the types of uh, procedures you perform, if you can have sort of like a baseball card of stats on you know, on what you do, you know, mm-hmm. if you've if you specialize in like a, a certain type of surgery that not a lot of people specialize in, you know, keep track of how many times you've done that surgery. And is it, so sometimes when you're judging the work of others as a clinician, as a practitioner, that may not be the way that traditionally you might think of it like, are you editing journal articles? Are you deciding whether people are in conferences? It could be, are you deciding who gets to do surgeries or what techniques move on? You know, when you're talking about impact on the field, um, are you the person that if someone has a specific condition or specific complications, that you get those kinds of cases because that's your niche? Or are you, you know, working on something that now has been implemented in other facilities? That's really helpful. So if you're a working physician who is planning on pursuing EB1 at some time in the future, one thing you want to kind of keep in the back of your mind as you're going through your days is uh, documenting the work that you do and documenting your accomplishments and contributions to your field. Um, It's very important to have, you know... uh, statistics on the types of procedures you perform, you know, how many times you've done a certain type of surgery. If you're a surgeon, uh, if you specialize in any other sort of procedure, you know, how many, 
how many of those have you done if, if you've exceeded your peers in any way on that sort of a scale. That's something important to note and to be able to document. Now, oftentimes it's not like um, you know doctors have a baseball card of statistics on their work, but if you keep track of it and we can get someone at your institution to sign off on the fact that those numbers are accurate, then that serves as a great piece of evidence demonstrating how you uh, may have distinguished yourself from your peers in one way or another. That's one one distinguishing thing. Another one could be, is there a specific approach that you're trying? Is there a specific condition that you're treating? Are you kind of a go-to person for someone with various complications? Um, Those can also help show that you have a pioneering kind of um, thrust to your practice. Um, which helps show extraordinary ability. Um, and of course, you know, you don't necessarily have people having citations, but in clinical practice, maybe you have other practitioners who are now using the same methods or approaches um, for their treatment of patients, and that can be quite helpful as well. So if, if that's the case, uh, you want to kind of seek out opportunities that allow you to highlight the fact that other people are using your work in that way. So perhaps you uh, could give a lecture at another institution teaching a certain method or procedure that you've developed. Um, Perhaps you've contributed knowledge or experience to the development of clinical protocols or guidelines. That's something that's also documentable. That would be make for a very strong piece of evidence for your case. Right, and you don't have to have changed everything on a national scale, but something that you've made that's evidence-based contributions, recommendations, maybe at your hospital, health system, um, or something that's just being used by other practitioners can be compelling. Because if you think about the other side of it, the coin where you have a traditional academic researcher, they don't necessarily have to have impacted everyone in the nation's thinking either. Um, So that's also true in this situation. Sure, and um, another uh, great uh, criteria that can be easily fulfilled by someone who's a working physician is the um, judge of the work of others criterion. And that's something you can fulfill by perhaps teaching continuing medical medical education courses, which often involves a... Um, an assessment afterwards, see how your students have done. That's one thing you can do. Giving grand rounds lectures can be uh, framed as being judge of the work of others because you're evaluating current practice and uh, teaching, um, giving your assessment and teaching other physicians. Right. So this is another way where you take kind of the same criteria that are already in there, um, but think of them in a different way that's creative to reframe the same list and apply it to a different type of extraordinary ability or outstanding research. Of course, one of the issues that we always come up against with individuals who are physicians can be documentation um, because there aren't necessarily the same types of venues for publication um, or presentation where you have a nice paper trail. Let's say someone's done some grand rounds, maybe Mm -hmm. they've influence some other practitioners. You know, we we see sometimes in requests for evidence, USCIS says, well, letters by themselves are not enough evidence to show that something has happened. So besides getting a reference letter from someone saying, hey, this was something that I did, what, what do you think you'd include? Um, Well, if there are any guidelines or uh, protocols published, perhaps they will... um Cite if you did a case study that's relevant to the um, 
to the procedures being discussed. Perhaps they will directly cite that case study. That's something that can be used to demonstrate your impact on uh, clinical practice. Yeah. Or even maybe manuals or policies Mm -hmm. or things that are at hospitals or it could be, you know, schedules for Mm -hmm. who's on grand rounds or who's doing evaluations. Um, So those are are ways to paper it. Yeah, internal emails may be announcing that a grand rounds will be happening or Mm -hmm. something of that nature. Um, Unfortunately, with physicians, a lot of it does rely on testimonial evidence, but any small pieces of documentary evidence that you can gather uh, will be extremely helpful because that's something the USCIS is always looking for. Yeah. So one of the big distinguishing factors between someone who's in academia and someone who might be in private practice is that sometimes people in private practice make a lot of money um, compared to academic researchers. Um, And people in private practice may be making a lot of money relative to other doctors. And for the extraordinary ability, that's actually one of the criteria for the category. Um, There's compensation that's high compared to others in the field or even remuneration. So it doesn't have to be base salary. It could include bonuses. Um, It could include potentially other types of benefits, car, um, housing, other things like that. And sometimes we find that after people have residencies, um, and even this might be just if someone is going into an area where there may be a shortage of doctors too, Sometimes I see a very easy point that we can hit, and it's fairly objective because it's about numbers Mm -hmm. where someone's making a high salary. And, of course, the easiest thing that you can do is say, well, this is the person's salary, very easy to show with an offer letter with pay statements. And then U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services is already very familiar with looking at online wage library information where they've taken different regions of the country, different occupations, and come up with wage levels for each of those, where there's an entry level, level one, all the way up to level four, being a more senior person. And if you have someone who's making, you know, 50% more than a level four, or double level four, or even, you know, some other increment higher than that top level four, this is already data that USAIS sees all the time and they trust. So that's a pretty easy one to document. Um, Sometimes we supplement it with some other salary information, but of course the online wage library is the easiest one. And then you've already pinned one criteria and there's usually not a whole lot that the um, adjudicator can say like it's not really open to a whole lot of interpretation at that point. So that can be an easy point. Of course, that's really one of the criteria just for extraordinary ability. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never tried it on an outstanding researcher to say that's alternative, like kind of under the catch-all. Sure. But I bet that you could. I bet you could, yeah. Um, Because if someone is paying you a lot more to do what you're doing than other people are getting paid, there must be a reason. Mm Mm-hmm. And of course, back to the original part of our discussion at the beginning, it's helpful to frame this in a way that's understandable. Of course, with any EB-1, they're going to look at the criteria that have been satisfied 
And then there is the final merits analysis. And this can be where things go off the rails a little bit. Because in Outstanding Researcher, of course, it says you need to meet two of the criteria. For Extraordinary Ability, it says you need to meet three. But just meeting that doesn't mean that the case is going to be approved. Um, So, of course, we always try to fill as many of the categories as possible, kind of a scattershot approach. Also, um, keeping in mind that we don't necessarily want to dilute it with things that are very weak um, in the eyes of USCIS. There may be certain accomplishments that mean a lot to individuals but aren't related enough or of a high enough stature to rise to the level for the EB1 criteria. Um, And I know one of the things that we see a lot are awards, um, lots of awards, and why don't you run through some of what we're looking for in awards. Sure. So um, we do have a lot of clients who come to us with uh, perhaps travel grants that they've gotten, scholarships they earned while they were in medical school, and those things just quite frankly don't uh, meet the bar that the USCIS is looking for on the awards criterion. Um, Awards need to be open to a national or international uh, pool of applicants or nominees or what have you. They have to be something that you're competing against a broad range of other people in your field for. So with awards, if it's something that's only open to people at a certain institution, those aren't going to work. If it's something that's only given to students, that's not going to work. If it's something that's maybe a small travel grant to a specific conference, I would say 99% of the time that wouldn't work. Best paper award at a conference probably also not going to work. Um, So really, when we do our analysis, we usually take those out of consideration right up front, and it's not because those aren't valuable things. It's because when USCIS sees those presented as though they satisfy the awards category, we will see them push back with a request for evidence where they kind of, we know they're going to knock it down. And if they're going to push back with one thing on a request for evidence, they're probably going to push back for everything, Um, particularly under the current administration. You know, we have seen cases get requests for evidence that, you know, I mean, always there's a chance that you get an adjudicator who's having a bad day or just isn't feeling it. But I feel like there there is maybe a little uptick in the requests for evidence on cases. Um, so we don't want to give them an easy reason to come back and ask questions. Um, so what we're really looking for for those awards is who's giving it. Um, is it the specific institution. If it's an organization that has national membership or international membership, maybe they have thousands of members, um, then that would be something that we would really consider. Um, So for example, some organizations will give lifetime achievement awards, and those are the things that we want to consider. Um, Is it an organization that's giving an award Do you have to be nominated for the award? Who judges the award? How do they pick who gets it? How many people get it? If 100 people get it, then that's probably not going to rise to the level of an award for an EB1. Um, For example, I, in college, I got a senior leadership award, um, and it meant a lot to me. I was the 
general manager of the college radio station. It was a top five college radio station. I was the first woman in 50 years of the radio who was general manager of that radio station. And because of the things, and and it was the second largest student organization on campus. Um, So those were all, I mean, it still means a lot to me more than 20 years later. Um, But let me tell you, that is not going to work for um, an EB1. Um, even though it, it is really significant. I'm serious. I have the award in my office. It's, I love it. You know, everyone sees it. Um, so it's not to discount these things important. It's really just to frame things in the most compelling way possible um, and to put the best foot forward. Um, sometimes we'll make a judgment call. Sometimes what we can do with those kinds of awards, and I'm, I'm not talking about a senior leadership award. I'm talking about things like best paper or maybe travel grants or, or things like that. Depending on the judgment criteria, we might be able to fit that into evidence of contribution um, to bolster that category because you know someone had to make some decision that there was something about this that was important. I mean, first of all, if it was a paper, it was included in the conference to begin with, and then of the papers that were there was pretty good. So at least at that venue at that time, it was considered um, a significant contribution, but probably not as a standalone for an award. So memberships and awards, sometimes physicians might be on boards, Mm -hmm. advisory boards. Sure. Um, Those might fall under um, the membership criterion or the award criterion, depending on the details. Um, We usually don't want to double dip the same thing under two different criteria, but um, for example, if you are on the board, an advisory board, or the hospital board, or some kind of physician board, if you're, you know, steering committee for Mm -hmm. the AAP, or I don't know, some other you know, the AMA, something like that, obviously that would be really helpful. And of course, you know, if you can get letters on letterhead from those kinds of organizations, that would do a lot for the petition strength. Um, So it's always nice to have some good results. um, And it's helpful to see what is working from the immigration adjudicator standpoint. A lot of times when we see other decisions or requests for evidence, that's also a lens into what adjudicators are thinking about. Um, We have a a fairly large team and have a lot of cases prepared and pending. I think at the moment, Mm -hmm. probably over 100 cases pending. Yes, yeah, Yeah. quite nearly. Yeah. Um, So it's helpful to have more data points. one of the things that I really enjoy about being here is that, you know, when you're seeing things, you can identify trends just within our own office, of mm-hmm. course. Um, so sometimes you get a bad adjudicator. Um, but we did have a, a recent success with someone who was fairly early in their career and also pretty much exclusively clinical in everything that they had been doing. Um, so there were some pretty compelling things about this case and um, Steve I wanted you to share some of the strategy that went into it and some of the way that that was Mm -hmm. presented because I think this is useful for framing other cases sure Um, so uh, like Vega said this individual is relatively early in their career 
and therefore they didn't have all of the uh, markers that the USCIS is looking for when judging extraordinary ability. Um, so this is another instance where the framing is really important. We need to say, yes, you know, this person hasn't been practicing for 20 years, so they're not going to have a lot of the things you would see with someone who would be in a situation like that. But they do have this, this, and this going for them. And as a uh, physician who's early in their career, this person is has really distinguished themselves from their peers uh, in these ways. Uh, one of the things we highlighted was that they were a chief fellow in their department, and we highlighted that the institution that they work for is especially prestigious. And because they were elected chief fellow of this uh, especially prestigious institution, that is a marker of the fact that they have skills that exceed those of everyone else they're working with in that and, department. And recognition. And recognition, sure. One of the other pieces that I thought was really compelling about this was, of course, it was an easy field to relate to. I think it was dealing with a condition that is fairly common, um, commonly experienced, so it was pretty relatable. Um, and this clinician was working on a different way to identify the disease and market that was more successful and less invasive than other practice, and it, it had already been implemented in the, the um, institution where they were practicing and also was getting some leverage other places. And, you know, when, when Steve mentions that, you know, this person was was extraordinary compared to their peers. Of course, when we say peers, we don't just mean people who are early in their career because the standard for immigration is by everyone in the field, period. Um, And so this is another place where when you have memberships or associations or awards, you know, we, we tend to be a little bit cautious if anything has an equivocating marker or a qualifying marker on it, like young or early career or at this stage or even geographic limitations. Um, you know, this is the best person doing this thing, you know, in this small town of 500 people where no one else is a doctor is less compelling, for example. Um, And really what we're looking at when we're strategizing is, well, they don't have this, but they have this, and we can put that together and frame it. When we present it to USCIS, of course, we're not we're not identifying what they don't have. Mm -hmm. We're saying what they do and you sell those pieces. So, I mean, that's, that's more of an internal discussion that we have at, at the beginning of the case that um, foreign nationals can be very helpful with framing as well. Of course, um, we don't have backgrounds in the field either. In a way, we're storytellers. If you have a case that you don't necessarily have publication or review, um, one of the things that you can consider is just doing those things. Of course, publication can be harder, but um, you actually had a pretty clever idea um, about just sort of inserting oneself in the review space by a letter to the editor or a comment. Sure. Um, And that can be an easy way to hit another criteria. Yeah, these are, I mean, these are things that you just actively want to be looking out for, opportunities to uh, meet these bullet points in the regulations. 
Um, so yes, sure, you may be invited to write a review article about something, but you could also put yourself out there and maybe comment on a piece that's been published or write a letter to the editor, like Vega said. It's just these are all things that are going to help bolster your case that you can actually actively pursue. Mm-hmm. And for extraordinary ability, they have the criterion of um, playing a critical and essential role for an organization with a distinguished reputation. Um, that can be another one where, you know, the place where you work, you where you will work or where you have worked, can be used to demonstrate that criterion. Um, actually, and so can remuneration. That can be previous, that can be present, that can be future. So someone with a job offer for $400,000 in an area where physicians usually make one hundred or $200,000, that's compelling. Um, but so think about the places where people have worked, are working, or will be working. Is that an institution that's a top institution? And then say, you know what, at this institution, this is the go-to person for this type of procedure or this type of service. And there you've got the criteria. Um, You throw in some letter from the institution, and this breaks my rule. Usually my rule is that we don't get letters from people who've worked with you directly um, or are at the same institution, but in these instances, we usually do. Um, But it's also helpful to get that corroborated by a letter from an independent reference Mm -hmm. where there are talking about both the reputation and the contributions, the person's role there, and saying, you know, if not for that, then, you know, this this person was basically the backbone of, let's say, their whatever trauma surgery or their cancer treatment or something, um, and, and put that in there. Okay, so we've covered a lot of steps that you as a working physician could be taking in your day-to-day life to set yourself up for a successful EB1 petition. Uh, Why don't we move on to talking about just the general state of things in uh, EB1 practice. Um, As of right now, we're still in the middle of a backlog for EB1 China and India. Right, and we did just get word from the Department of State, um, Charlie Oppenheim, Charles, Mm -hmm. Chuck, Oppenheim. He's um he's not he's saying that the weather's not looking that great for um that necessarily resolving by the new fiscal year. We were hoping that we might get some encouraging news or see some easing up. Um. So one thing to look out for in the future is that we will be hosting a webinar on EB1 for doctors in mid-July. Uh, that's something you can check on our website, and we'll be sending out emails about. So keep your eyes open for that if you'd like a little more hands-on instruction if you're a working doctor looking to pursue EB1. Fega, thank you again for joining me today. And thanks, Steve, um, for being here and for all of your creativity that you help infuse into our cases. All right, and uh, thank you, listeners, for listening. This, once more, has been Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast from Glasgow Immigration Law Partners. And if you do have one, ask if you could um, rate and review the show with a five-star. That really helps listeners find us and helps us to produce content. For more information, visit us at ClasgoLaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at ClasgoLaw.com. podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.